Good morning. Today's scripture reading is on page 992. It is 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 16. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy, when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thank you. All right, thank you, Lindmark men. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to First Timothy chapter 4. Why don't we pray together? Father, thank you for... This time together, thank you for your word, the living word and the written word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through the word. Thank you for speaking to us through the word. And I pray that you would now enable me by your spirit to say what your word says and enable all of us by your spirit to hear and understand and believe and be changed by your word. Father, we pray that you would do this for our our good and for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was the Apostle John who said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Um, I I have experienced that joy, thankfully. Uh, I've experienced that joy in the home and in the church, and what a great joy it really is. But conversely, maybe there is no greater sorrow than when your children have rejected the truth and are living and believing lies. Uh, I've experienced that sorrow too, both in the home and in the church. 
I don't think I'm alone in experiencing that sorrow. Um, when you know and love the truth, and the ones that you love most reject the truth, it really is something that brings a great heartache. Uh, you long to see those you love walking in the truth. Um, this, is, this desire really is what the Spirit of God produces in all of our hearts. The Apostle Paul experienced this with the church that he dearly loved. Paul begins this letter, a letter written to Timothy, commanding him to stop certain men from teaching false doctrines. In chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, it says this again, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Paul cared deeply for the truth and for the church. I, I want you, I'm going to read a couple of other passages of Scripture that illustrate how important the truth really is. John 8.32 says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 17.17 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. With truth being so weighty and important to the church, it should not surprise us to learn that what you teach really matters to God. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things. So remember that Paul was charged here, he charged Timothy with the task of not letting certain men continue teaching a different gospel. But here's an instance where Paul tells Timothy what he should teach and preach. Preach the true gospel. And you must do this with a conviction that Truth matters. The gospel matters. Um, though this letter is written to Timothy to equip him for ministry as a leader in the church, what is taught here is good for every single member of the church to take to heart. It, it mattered what Timothy taught the church as a leader. It matters what the elders here at Grace Hill Church teach, but it also matters what 
you teach when you faithfully engage in making disciples of all nations, just as the Great, Great Commission teaches us. So what you teach matters to God because there are, in fact, all sorts of crazy myths and wives' tales that are being circulated. In the first five verses of chapter 4, Paul exposed the lie that God is more pleased in you uh, or, he can, or when you consider yourself more spiritual because you have abstained from marriage or certain foods. But the truth of the matter is, as verse 4 and 5 teaches us, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. We also know that Jesus confronted the Pharisees because as he said in Mark chapter 7 verse 7, in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Um, Lucas uh, taught us a number of weeks ago that this is legalism. Legalism um, teaches lies, emphasizing that you are saved by your rule-keeping. Um, God will accept you if you don't smoke or chew or go out with girls who do. Um, legalism is harsh and demanding because it presses man-made rules on people. And there, there is judgment, there is condemnation if you don't comply with these man-made rules. It's, in legalistic churches, the focus is often on outward conformity to man-made rules. Some of you know I, was, I grew up around the Amish, um, and the Amish are known to impose the rule of the bishop on its members. And so the bishop says, no electricity, no cars, no air in your tires, no store-bought clothes, no TVs, no radios, no phones, no modern conveniences as he defines them. And obedience to these man-made rules becomes a test of fellowship for you. If you don't comply with these man-made rules, you are excommunicated from the church. I have a step-uncle who was kicked out of the Amish church because he flew in an airplane, which the bishop had forbidden. Now, mind you, he had traveled to Canada, and he was on part of a service trip, and the only way to reach the people they were doing the service project uh, with were... Uh, by plane, float planes that would go into the bush country uh, to, to meet the needs of the people there. And because he went on that plane, he was excommunicated from the church. He broke the bishop's rule. And for years, he was not permitted to sit at the same table with his parents or his siblings. And then eventually... Uh, he, was, he was allowed to be in the room, but they would set up a table on the, at the side over by the wall where he sat by himself while his parents and his siblings sat around the table. Now, maybe you think, I don't live in an Amish community, so I don't struggle with legalism. But 
I would suggest that the lies of legalism have deep roots everywhere that only the truth of the gospel can really pull out. I want you to listen. I'm going to read a, a bit of a lengthier quote from a book, an excellent book written by Milton Vincent. It's a gospel primer for Christians with a subtitle, Learning to See the Glories of God's Love. And what I'd like to do is read his testimony. And again, this is a bit of a lengthier quote, but I think it is helpful as we listen to the way God worked in his life. Milton Vincent says this, I've had it. My heart fumed as I drove home from work that fateful day in the spring of 2001. I, I can't keep going like this. Those driving behind me and beside me on the freeway would have observed nothing out of the ordinary in my driving. They could not have known that I was perilously close to wrecking what was left of my faith. Frustrated by the exhausting task of staying in God's good favor, I was careening away from God once again. Indeed, I was a believer in Christ. In fact, a number of times throughout my life, I prayed to God, putting my trust in Christ and asking him to save me. Baptized at the age of five and again at the age of 15, I would have been baptized yet again at the age of 17 were it not for my pastor teaching me. My problem was certainly not a lack of faith or professions of faith. My problem was that I couldn't seem to figure out how to stay in the good favor of the God who had saved me. I would never have acknowledged this to be the case at the time, but I labored for most of my life to maintain my justified status before God, and I was always left frustrated in my attempts to do so. The God I believed in was frequently angered at me, when I would come into his presence to make some right, make right some wrong, his arms were tightly folded and his eyes were slow to meet mine. I imagined an angry look on his face and it was always up to me to figure out some way to mollify him. I figured that if I beat myself up sufficiently in his presence or pled with him long enough or just waited a few hours to put a little distance between me and my sin, then he might warm up to me again. This view of God would work for a short while, but eventually the sheer quantity of times I failed God would reach a threshold where I was convinced that he was fed up with me. I also grew weary of always falling out of his favor and having to confess or work my way back into his good graces. Exhausted from such efforts, I would eventually give up trying to relate to God at all. I would then go weeks and months where all I did was simply try not to do anything stupid or overtly sinful. But inwardly, I often harbored much sin, and eventually I would find myself acting out in ways that would frighten me and bring the Spirit's conviction upon me. Feeling convicted over such sin, I would return to God as a prodigal and renew my efforts to please him this time around. With a burst of energy, I would throw myself 
into trying to relate to God once again, only to end up a short time later exactly as I had so many times before, frustrated, fed up, and exhausted. I operated this way through college and seminary, and even though the first decade of my ministry as a pastor, all the while I hung on to my faith because I knew something better was available. I just didn't know how to get it. God was gracious to teach me many things along the way that continued to move me forward, but rest in Christ eluded me. In April of 2001, I was in the fourth week of a season of renewal in my walk with the Lord. I was relating to God with renewed passion and was experiencing significant growth as a result, but the same wearisome agitation began to grow over me as days wore by. It was wearing me to a nub. Driving home from work one day, my mind came back to the Lord after I had allowed my thoughts to drift for about 10 minutes. I was instantly concerned about what I might have just been thinking about in the previous 10 minutes. Have I been thinking anything sinful, I asked myself? If so, then God would be angry at me for letting my thoughts wander so. Or maybe I wasn't even thinking sinful thoughts, but perhaps... God is upset with me because I wasn't thinking on him instead. My mind began to agitate and I winced under the Lord's gaze. Lord, Lord, are we okay, I ask? Have I thought any thoughts that have offended you? Do I need to make anything right in order to restore our relationship? I anxiously retraced my thoughts from the previous 10 minutes I felt I needed to do this in order to know the countenance of God's, God towards me at the moment. If he was angry, then I had to go back into his good graces. A feeling of nausea began to sweep over me, and years of pent-up frustration seemed to coalesce at that one moment. Surely, relating to God can't be this difficult, my heart screamed. Why is it so hard to stay in his good graces? I can't keep track of every thought in order to make sure that he stays favorably favorably disposed towards me. This isn't possible. Feeling exhausted at the thought of a lifetime of having to tend so obsessively to keeping myself in the good favor of God, I felt a manic urge to trash the whole effort. The words of a hymn came to my mind and I began to sing them. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. As I sang those words, I agonized over the fact that my own experience was far removed from the rest about which the songwriter spoke. When I got home, I found that my wife and kids were not at home, so I grabbed my Bible and began reading Romans 5 out loud as I paced the floor in our living room. What led me to Romans 5, I don't recall, but I'm glad I landed there because the chapter saved my life. I started reading, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, all, 
also we have obtained our introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand. As we exalt, and he says, as I continued through the chapter, my soul was stirred by the inspired exaltations of a man who rejoiced in rather than worried about his justified status before God. This justification brought him into a gracious standing with God that was accomplished and always maintained by Jesus Christ. The more I read, the more I began to see something I'd not seen before. As a justified one, I am under God's gracious favor at all times because of what Jesus did. This favored standing with God has nothing to do with my performance, but only with the performance of Jesus. As I read through the length of the chapter, I began to see that my justification was not something to agitate over, but to exalt in, not something to wrestle for, but to rest in. I stole a glimpse into chapter 6 and realized that even when I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. The above realizations may seem like no-brainers to some, but Paul's teaching on justification hit me that day as never before. Indeed, I had always believed I was justified, but I guess I treated my justification as some sort of legal fiction that I had little direct bearing on the mechanics of how God related to me and how I related to him. I suppose I would have imagined God saying, yeah, technically you're justified, but I'm angry with you anyway for what you did today. But now I realize that absolutely 100% of the wrath I deserve for my sins was truly spent on Jesus. And there's none of God's anger left over, or over for me to bear, even when I fail God as a Christian. Hence, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admit admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always seeking to work all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. All of these realities hold true even when I sin. Being justified in Christ doesn't mean that God no longer sees or cares about my sin. He does see and he is grieved by my sin, but his gracious favor upon me reminds me, or remains, excuse me, remains utterly unchanged by my sin, and no wrath is awakened in him against me, because Christ already bore it all. In fact, God favors me so much when I sin that he sends chastisement chastisement into my life. He does so because he is for me 
and he loves me and he dis- disciplines me for my ultimate good. It's a great testimony of a man who was serving in the ministry but wasn't resting in the completed work of Christ. Um, I'm thankful that we now have on our walls here a reminder that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. So I I want you to know, I, I took time to read that lengthy quote from Milton Vincent to emphasize the importance that of what you teach, uh, what you teach, what you believe is absolutely important. But also, Paul teaches us here in 1 Timothy 4 that how you live matters to God. Verse 12 says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So when Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, he's not suggesting that Timothy has the power to dictate what someone will or will not think of him. You you can't control what someone else will think of you or how they will respond to you. Instead, Paul's saying, don't let the immaturity of youth be the thing that hinders people from benefiting from your ministry. Uh, Later, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul said this in 2 Timothy 2, 22, so flee youthful passions. Have nothing to do with foolish arguments or, or controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Um, I, I think it's a false notion to think that Just because you're gray and advanced in years, you will be filled with knowledge and wisdom. Um, Time alone does not make someone wise. Instead, it is the gospel at work in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives knowledge and wisdom and in fact transforms your life. And this can happen in the life of someone when they are young as much as it can happen in the life of someone when they are old. Paul tells Timothy, though you are young, it is your responsibility to set an example for them in speech, in conduct, in life, in in love, in faith, in purity. And and this is why Paul said in verse 7 back earlier in verse 7 of chapter 4, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself for godliness. Uh, Andrew did a good job of teaching us this several weeks ago, and when he did that, he took us to a passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'd like to take you there again this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says this, and this is an important reminder for us not to forget that, and I quote, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it's like it's a reminder, a needed reminder. God's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. But then he says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he goes on. But I I want you to notice God's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And that's the very reason why we make every effort to grow and change. It's God's power at work that has called you to himself through the promise of the gospel. And it's through the gospel that you become more and more Christ-like in character. This is why you are commanded to make every effort to grow and change. This is the training yourself for godliness. You, you work hard at growing with the very energy and power that God provides by his spirit. Now, when we go back to verse 12 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, we learn that some of the things the Spirit wants to produce in your life is speech. Set the believers an example in speech. And as we think about some of Paul's letters, there's a number of things we learn. One, don't be argumentative. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 23 through 26, teaches us about how being argumentative is not helpful in relationships or advancing the gospel. We're taught to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. So learning to speak the truth, saying what needs to be said, but saying it in love, uh, saying it for the good of another person, not to win an argument, not to win a score, uh, but to say it for the good of the other person. Speak what you have to speak, to speak what is true, but the way in which you speak it should be flavored with love. Also, we're taught to be honest in what you say. Ephesians 4.25, put off falsehood and speak the truth with one another. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 teaches us to speak edifying words that are filled with grace. Don't let our words tear other people apart. Let our words be words that give grace, that meet the needs that they have to help them to become what God wants them to be. Um, Colossians 4.6 teaches us that we should season our words with salt. So speak gracious words seasoned with salt. Learning, learning how to say what needs to be said, learning how to speak the truth in a way that is going to be more palatable, to, to, to say what needs to be said in a way that's going to be received in a better way. So Paul tells Timothy, set an example in your speech. And those are some of the examples. He also says, set an example in conduct. Um, your way of life has to be consistent with the gospel that you preach. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect in every way. It does mean that when you sin, you're quick to confess that sin. You repent of that sin. You seek forgiveness. You, you're quick to change and grow. That also means that you'll be a person that carries yourself with humility. You're not 
impressed with your righteousness. You are impressed with Jesus and the work that he is doing and has done in your life. This also means that you will seek to be faithful to Christ, even if you suffer in the process. Um, The real character, the quality of our character, I think, is revealed when we experience trials. Um, You know, we can can think we're doing just fine when everything is going just the way we want it to go, but when we experience difficulties in life, that's when what's really in our heart is exposed. And Paul is emphasizing to Timothy to say, your conduct needs to be consistent, even when you face the difficulties in life. In Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Paul had reminded the Ephesian elders, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I stepped foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul was able to say to them, follow me as I follow Christ. Um, Paul also emphasized the importance of love, set an example of love. Love is really important. We we can do a lot of great things. Uh, We can give generously to meet lots of needs. But if we don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, we are a noisy gong and a clanging simple. We're, we're worthless. We love as God has loved us in Christ. This means that if we love others in God-like ways, we will sacrificially give to others for their good with no strings attached, no expectations in return. We won't give to gain influence or power. We'll give for their good and for God's glory. And when the Spirit produces love in us, it will be as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. So when we say, I, I love you, we're saying, God help me to do these things. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Paul also said, Timothy set the believers an example in faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, faith believes the gospel. Faith trusts and rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's this faith in Jesus that is the basis of our peace and our joy in life. Even in the storms of life, faith has eyes to see Jesus as a refuge. We run to him. We find strength in him. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. And faith leads us to live and obey and follow Jesus. And so if you have this kind of faith, you can say with Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul also says, set the believers an example in purity. Um, If we are pure, 
We are not interested just in cleaning up outward behavior, but we are also interested in seeing our heart change. If we have a pure heart, we will not be one thing in public and then something else in private. If we are pure in heart, we will have a genuine love for God and for others, not self. If we are pure in heart, the motives of our heart will be for the praise of God's glory, not, not our own. The, these are the kinds of things that the gospel produces in the lives of a believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. These things don't grow in your life just because you advance in years. They grow because you depend upon the Spirit of God to to give you strength to be trained for godliness. This is how you will be an example to others. This is how you can point others to Jesus because you know that it's only Him by His Spirit that can produce that kind of stuff in your life. So what you teach matters to God. Um, How you live matters to God. But also, thirdly, being devoted to a ministry of the Word matters to God. Listen to verses 13 through 15. Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So notice some of these these verbs. Devote yourself. Don't neglect these things. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things. This is really becomes a matter of stewardship. Paul's making it clear to Timothy that he has the responsibility to be faithful in ministering the word, serving up the word, be devoted to the public reading of Scripture. Now this was particularly needed in a time when there were not many copies of the written word available. Uh, Certainly for us, the printing press changed everything. Most of us have access to multiple copies of the Bible and various translations, both on the printed page and on our phones and on our tablets. That's not our problem. We have the Bible everywhere. We, We have the distinct privilege to read the Bible anywhere, anytime. But in the early church, copies of the Old Testament scriptures would often be read in the temple or the synagogue. And then certainly when the church was formed and gathered for worship, that's when they would hear the reading of scripture. The the gospels and the epistles in the early church, as they were being written, the early church would rely upon these being read aloud more than people having individual copies to read on their own. So the public reading of Scripture was absolutely essential for the Word to be heard. And I would argue that today, um, it still needs to be a value and priority for us to listen to the Bible being read and taught and preached. We, We want to hear what 
God says. But just reading isn't enough. Timothy was taught to be devoted to exhorting and teaching the word. Um, the, the word needed to be explained. At, at times, people need encouragement from the word. At times, people need admonishment from the word. All of this is meant to grow people in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. It's meant to bring about change in us, to bring growth, maturity in, in us. Listen to what Paul says to, his, to Timothy in his second letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Again, this emphasizes the importance of the word, the truth. Paul says, I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So for some, God has gifted you, called you to be a leader here in this church. Um, That was confirmed by the church appointing you and laying their hands on you in prayer. Um, These verses are particularly for you. But the principle here is true for all people. All have been gifted with a spiritual gift and all have the responsibility of stewarding that gift for the building up of the church and for the glory of God, uh, a ministry of the word as we make disciples. Now, quickly, there's one final command given to Timothy here in this passage, and it's here that we learn closely watching your life and teaching matter to all for eternity. Verse 16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Um, This is really a sobering and weighty responsibility. What, What you teach and how you live and how you minister the word does have an impact upon you, but not just to you. It matters to God. It's with the authority of Jesus Christ that the Apostle Paul here in these verses gives Timothy 10 commandments. 10 commandments are given in six verses. So God's putting a tremendous amount of responsibility on Timothy and really upon all of us. We we must obey God. But Timothy's life and teaching also impacts other people in the church. If you abandon the gospel, you are abandoning the way of salvation, both for yourself and your hearers. And this is why you must pay careful attention to your life and the teaching. Uh, Shelly and I attended a college that once stood firmly on the gospel. Um, 
It came out of a heritage filled with people so committed to the truth, so committed to the gospel that they were, be, they, they were willing to be martyred for their faith. And they have a rich heritage of being martyred for their faith. But by the time Shelley and I were students at this college, it had lost its commitment to the gospel, tragically. It had instead took up the mission of bringing peace to the world. And by peace to the world, it was primarily, if not solely, focused on peaceful relationships between nations and people. Um, they, they were so committed to peaceful relationships with people that they, while we were students, they invited a Muslim student to read from the Quran during our chapel service, just so that he would feel included. Wanted him, we wanted there to be peace in, in our relationship. And so the campus pastor asked a Muslim student to read from the Quran during our Christian uh, chapel service. Um, it, it was very, very sobering. Shelly and I attended a funeral yesterday. We, on Friday, drove out to Pennsylvania, attended a funeral, and drove back yesterday. Um, and we were, this funeral was held at a church that was, came from the same background and tradition as the college that we attended. And I listened very carefully throughout this funeral message, and I, I had gone there kind of suspicious that the message might be lukewarm and watered down and weak, but I have to tell you, I was just utterly grieved in my heart because there was no mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was no mention of the person of Jesus. There was no mention of the cross of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There was no mention of the shed blood of Jesus to atone for our sin. There is no mention of the fact that our only hope is in what God sent his son to do for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. There is a lot about the love of God. Um, but when you think about the New Testament scriptures, and you think about the love of God, what's the greatest manifestation of the love of God? It's the gift of Jesus who willingly went to the cross and gave his life to atone for our sins. And there was absolutely no mention of that. It, it, it grieved our heart. It broke our heart to, to see the, the condition of this, this church, uh, if we call it that that has totally abandoned the gospel. Um, the gentleman who died in his latter years confessed how he just doesn't believe what he once believed. His son wrote a book esteeming the word, and the father read it and gave it back and said, that's, that's good for you, but I just don't believe that anymore. And, I mean, that... That, that's sad in itself, but as I reflected on attending this funeral there yesterday, I'm convinced it's because 
the church long ago abandoned the truth. They abandoned the word. They abandoned the gospel. And if there is no gospel that's proclaimed and believed, there's no foundation for life. What are we going to stand on if we don't believe and proclaim the gospel? How are we going to live? What's the basis for hope for the future without the, the preaching, the speaking and proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, I, I want you to know that my prayer for me, for us as elders, and, and for all of you, that we would be a people who would understand the importance of the word, the truth, and that we'll be hungry for the truth. We'll want to build our lives upon the gospel and not abandon it, not assume it, not ever think that we need to move on from it, but to, to proclaim the gospel to ourselves again and again, to grow in our understanding and love for the work that God has done and is doing for us through Jesus and will do for us in the future. What? What you teach matters to God. How you live matters to God. How you minister the word matters to God. Again, verse uh, 16, it says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The Apostle John again said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Uh, may your walking in the truth be the source of great joy for you and for those who follow in your footsteps. Let's pray together. Father, it's humbling when we see how important the truth is, how important the, the gospel is, how important it is to hear and understand and believe what you have done through your Son to save a people for the praise of your name. Father, I'm reminded today that um, I have heard the gospel, I have believed the gospel, I do continue to believe the gospel because of your gracious work in my life. And I thank you and I praise you for that. I'm thankful for this body of believers and for the, the many that are here who have also heard and believed and continue to believe the good news of Jesus. And I pray that you would, by your spirit, keep us believing Help us, Father, to pay careful attention to our own lives and to the teaching. Help us to find great joy and rest in Jesus. And I pray that it will be our great joy, but also the joy of those that follow in our footsteps. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.